Welcome to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. How girls' bodies have changed, why, and what does it mean in today's sexually liberal society is one of the many topics in a book called The Body Project, An Intimate History of American Girls. This book is written by Professor Joan Jacobs Brumberg, who teaches history and women's studies at Cornell University in Ithaca, New York. Professor Brumberg is the guest today in this second of a two-part series from the archives of Radio Curious. When I spoke with her by phone, I asked her to begin by explaining how girls' bodies have changed in the last 100 years, why, and what does it mean in today's sexually liberated society. Girls' bodies have changed in some remarkable ways over the past century. Most people can tell just from looking at family photographs that girls are larger, taller in particular. Uh, than their mother's and grandmother's generation. If you go to a local historical society, people always marvel at how small women in the 19th century were. Um, One very critical factor in the situation of contemporary girls is that they are experiencing earlier sexual maturation. By that I mean they're going through menarche, first period, earlier than at any other time in history so far as we know. Um, And the average age today is about 12 years, three months. A century ago, the age was 14 or 15. Are you talking about uh, American girls? I'm talking about American girls, but also girls in Western Europe. This isn't true of girls in uh, other parts of the world? It is true wherever industrialization and modernization have brought greater affluence. In other words, it's a function, it's caused by uh, improved nutrition and also the decline of infectious diseases. There are some people who think that it's also been um, accelerated by the influence of uh, the estrogenizing influences in the environment. And particularly in foods that we eat. Now, the, the issue is that earlier sexual maturation is not in and of itself a problem, of course, unless there's something going on in the culture that makes it a problem. And this earlier sexual maturation is not, as far as we know, accompanied by any parallel escalation in thinking and emotional development. So girls develop earlier in the United States today, but they're not necessarily supported more. In fact, I argue in the Body Project that instead of offering them any special relief or protection or nurturance the way they were in the Victorian era, um, contemporary American culture exacerbates their normal adolescent self-consciousness and it encourages precocious sexuality. Well, I'd like you to explain that, but uh, at the same time, the relationships as to why they're not given the special nurturance or the the special help on emotional developments. I I think they're two separate parts. Okay, well, I mean, you know, one of the things that's happened is that our culture has changed. Our family life has changed. Our communities have changed. Our 
sense of, of you know, equity between the genders has changed. So we don't have the kind of protective umbrella over girls that we used to have a hundred years ago. And by the protective umbrella, I mean all of those single-sex groups uh, where girls mixed with other girls, but also older women who were not their mothers, who were group leaders or Sunday school teachers or Girl Scout leaders. or There was an enormous amount of interchange and, uh, and connection between the generations, and most women in late 19th century America and well into the 20th century thought that adolescent girls, simply because of their biology, were more vulnerable than boys and deserved a special kind of support and protection. Now, some of it was punitive, I agree, and some of it was repressive, and some of it was, you know, a lot of monitoring. I don't want to go back to chastity belts. I'm not that kind of person. Um, I think there's been an enormous amount of progress and new opportunities for girls that are terrific. But also, there, there has been, at the same time, a kind of backing off of our responsibility for them. Um, you know, we, uh, there's a lot of evidence that uh, we've backed off on our commitment to statutory rape laws. Um, you know, uh, there are social stu uh, science studies that indicate that mothers don't spend as much time with their daughters anymore. Um, so the protective umbrella has kind of disappeared uh, in the name of progress and equity and because of a lot of social and economic changes. Girls are on their own earlier than ever before. And in this particular culture, that puts them at some risk. And the risks are? Well, there are all kinds of risks. I mean, there are the, the, the risks are uh, sexual debuts that are too early. Uh, the risks are high numbers of adolescent female depression, suicide, eating disorders. Um, the, the risks are reflected in the number of teenage mothers that we have in this country, where the, the fathers, by and large, are at least five years older, which suggests that there's a pattern of, of sexual predators. Uh, the, there's more rather than less acquaintance rape on college campuses. I think the risks are pretty obvious. So then the question is, why uh, are these girls not getting the special nurture after Menarche? Well, I, you know, again, it has to do with these larger changes in our culture. I, I think that many of women like myself who fought for sexual liberation in the 1960s and 70s, we, we could not have anticipated the way in which early sexual maturation, uh, plus our commitment to adolescent sexual expression, which I'm committed to, um, and our commitment to gender equity, which I'm committed to. So in other words, we didn't want to give girls any special protections anymore. And the HIV virus would all come together at the end of the 20th century. So there are some risks for girls in sexual liberalism, which I support, um, that don't occur for adult women. The adolescent uh, sexual expression, um, talk about that in terms of how you feel it should be in a way that does not uh, bring young girls to risk. Um, I believe that we need to develop some form of what I will call feminist sexual ethics as a response to 
sexual liberalism at the end of the 20th century. We need sexual ethics for girls that are appropriate to what I am calling the post-virginal age. And what I mean by that is we need to, as mothers, as teachers, as aunts, as sisters, older sisters, we need to talk with girls about what is fair and what's equitable in the realm of the intimate. And that's regardless of whether the partner, frankly, is male or female. I think there are three principles here. One is safety, and you know that means that we have to respect the fact that the HIV virus is out there. I think responsibility is another factor. I don't think we should, I think kids need to know that they shouldn't have kids um, until they can support them. So I think we've got to talk birth control. But I think we also need to talk about reciprocity. And by that I mean we need to help girls learn how to be comfortable in this post-virginal world and to learn how to ask for what makes them comfortable. Um, simply put, I think that we need to do more than simply teach them how to say no. We need to teach them how to say things like, um, I don't want to do it yet, but, you know, this other thing that we're doing is kind of fun. <laughs> or, I don't want to do it the first time on a dirty mattress uh, in a fraternity party. Um, we need to help girls find a vocabulary um, to negotiate for themselves in this very difficult sexual marketplace where there's a lot of pressure on young girls to be sexually active because that's what maturity seems to be con received uh, or constructed. That's how maturity is constructed for them in this, in this culture. Now, the problem is, and this is where we're going to get back to my interest in the body project and the kind of bad body fever that girls are experiencing where they don't like their bodies. The problem is that girls who think like that, and so many American girls do think like that, that kind of thinking empowers male desire. Uh, can you define when you say uh, think like that? What is okay. the... What I mean by bad body fever is they have this kind of continuous internal commentary going on with themselves, you know, about they hate their, their thighs, they hate their, excuse me, their butts, they don't like their noses, they don't like their chins, you know, they want to have liposuction, that kind of thing, that dissatisfaction with their body. We know that by age 17, 78% of American girls are dissatisfied with their bodies. This kind of thinking, which I describe in The Body Project, that's why I have the title. The body has become the project. It affects adolescent development and experience. Number one, it's a brain drain. Okay, it, it saps creativity and energy. But it also, I want to return to this point, it empowers men, not girls. Girls who don't feel good about themselves. Girls who are constantly, in a sense, uh, criticizing themselves uh, for not looking right are more susceptible to flattery, to manipulation, and even abuse. Uh, they want to be wanted so much that they can't be critical of anyone outside themselves. They turn inward uh, and uh, they very often can't negotiate in this sexually liberal society. And, you know, we have lots of evidence that first intercourse for American girls is involuntary. When they 
are not, when they are susceptible to flattery and can't be critical of anyone else besides themselves, brings us back to helping them find a vocabulary to negotiate for themselves. Right. Can you be specific on the kind of vocabulary and the topics that uh, should well, be developed? I, I thought that I had, you know, indicated some of that when I said that I think the girls need to learn that there are, that there are some points on the spectrum of sexual activity short of having intercourse. All right, they can pet. You know, that's fine, and they can take some pleasure from that. And I wouldn't be adverse to encouraging girls to do that, particularly at 14, 15, and 16. I think they can learn to say that, yeah, you know, if I'm going to have intercourse with you, it's going to be protected, it's going to be safe, and it's going to be pleasant, in a pleasant environment. So that's part of the negotiating process that I think they have to learn. But I also think that they have to learn earlier on in life that, their bodies, their attitudes to, towards their bodies uh, should be um, focused on what their bodies can do rather than what they look like. Because if they enter this sexual marketplace feeling that they have to get affirmation from boys, um, you know, in the form of, of kind of sexual play, then I don't think they do very well. So I think with even very young girls, like toddlers, we can change our responses to them. I mean, I have two granddaughters, and um, every time I see them now, I don't go into the grandma stick, which is, oh, you look so cute. They do, but I keep, I button my lip. And instead, I am apt to say, hi, guys, um, what's happening? Um, what's happening with your bike riding uh, to the older one? Have you dropped your training wheels yet? To the younger one, how fast can you run? Or, what's your favorite bedtime story this week? Move the emphasis off the appearance thing and get them thinking about achievement and activity rather than simply that, that power is located in their physical appearance. I mean, boys I, are socialized differently. I want to and come back to this. Women, by the way, my age uh, have also got to change our behavior. I want to come back to how the behavior has changed and how uh, people who might be shocked at discussing the issues of sexuality of 14-year-old girls uh, can be brought to understand the issue that you're discussing. But first I want to say that my guest is Joan Jacobs Brumberg, a professor at Cornell University in Ithaca, New York. And we're talking about The Body Project, uh, An Intimate History of American Girls, a new book that uh, she has just written. A couple of uh, thoughts come to mind, uh, Joan, and that is the issue of talking openly about sexual pleasure for adolescent girls uh, seems to me could be very disturbing to many parents. Yes, I, I suspect it could be. And I think there are... Silence is a risk. <laughs> I think that, uh, I don't think it's that hard for a mother to sit down with her daughter and say um, that if you're, if you have, uh, if you're having a, uh, a, if you have a boyfriend and uh, you're beginning to uh, have some physical contact with him, that it's, you should be thinking about what makes you feel good too that he should not be in the driver's seat all the time. She doesn't even have to be explicit if she's too fearful of that. But she can say, you know, 
he shouldn't call all the shots. You're talking about mother-daughter conversations. How about father-daughter conversations? I think it's even more powerful if the father can, can say that. And I think it's very important that fathers reward daughters for uh, something other than being adorable. For being intelligent, for what's Absolutely. in... Absolutely, for in... their activity, for their creativity, you know, for their achievement. I think fathers and mothers together have to begin at an early age to promote the idea that girls should be bold and strong and smart, not just decorative. The question is, how is that? Be how can that become a value in our society when, uh, as I believe, there's so much fear in doing that within the home, number one, and so much fear in doing that within schools and within talking in the school setting, talking about the issues that you've raised. Well, I, I don't, I don't think that there's that much fear. I mean, I, I think that there are plenty of school systems and teachers that know that they must begin to, to do some meaningful interventions uh, with kids around these issues. And, and uh, um, I, it's interesting, there was an article in the New York Times recently about the, the um, discussion of single-sex education. And um, the thing, the article ended up basically um, showing that one of the, the virtues that educators found in the single-sex environment uh, not everybody needs to do this, but there are many girls who would profit by it. That's what the studies show. Um, one of the issues that could be dealt with best in single-sex environments was this issue of female body image and self-esteem and also uh, early sexuality. So, um, you know, maybe there's fear out there, but I think intelligent parents need to um, face the music, and that is, that whether you're on the right, political right, or political left, right now, at the end of the 20th century, um, girls and their bodies are under greater pressure than ever before. You're making this the theme and the value of The Body Project, your book. But there's so many other issues that go along in our society now that, as you mentioned, cause mothers not to spend as much time with their daughters as before. Oh, that's right. I mean, some of it is simply the reality of our busy lives and the fact that most women now, uh, including myself, uh, we work not simply for self-expression anymore. We work because we have to. Um, and I think that economic changes, uh, the need for two, to, for you know, two-income families, particularly uh, to maintain middle-class status. I mean, all of that has, in some ways, all the social changes in the 20th century are writ large in the bodies of adolescent girls. Girls are the ones who have borne the brunt of social change in the 20th century. Their bodies have borne the, the brunt of social change, and that's one of the points of my book. The cover of your book uh, shows the navel of a girl with um, a pierce, pierced navel with a ring in it. Yeah. Um, that's exemplary of girls bearing the brunt of the change? Well, it's certainly a visual image of where we are now, and I talk about piercing in the book, um, and how now the entire body is a message board. You know, I mean, girls are piercing more than their navels, as you know. They're piercing their breasts and they're piercing their genital parts. And uh, one of the themes in my book is how, at the end of the 20th century, 
uh, everyone in American society is so body oriented, and we expect uh, the or we think of our bodies as perfectible. Um, that is not something that that is Americans a century ago did not think that way. Uh, the cover was not my choice, I must say. Are you implying that uh, piercing creates a greater level of perfection, or is this just no, a tangent? No, what I'm implying is that piercing is a symbol of the ways in which the entire body has now become a message board. Piercing is a style. Um, it's chosen by a certain segment of young people in America, and they regard their body, their entire body, as uh, a, a way to express their identity. Talk a little bit more about that piercing, because it's, uh, to me, if, if the ears are pierced, they're visible. Um, if the nose is pierced, it'll cause some reaction in people who see it. If the lips or tongue are pierced, it causes even a greater reaction because it's likely to be seen, but the navel or the breasts are less likely to be seen if pierced. Well, there is this public-private distinction, you know, in terms of which body parts are, are pierced. But let me just tell you a story. When I had my ears pierced in 1963 or 64, when I was at college, my mother was horrified. And why was she horrified? She was horrified because she was a daughter of immigrants, and um, he um, felt that um, ear piercing harkened back to the old country. You know, there's a certain amount of cultural relativism here that we need to pay attention to. Um, I don't particularly love uh, myself pierced eyebrows or, or, or lips. Um, but I think it's, a, it's, a, it's part of a, a style, again, of a certain segment of young people in America. It has a certain meaning for them. Uh, it's a way of saying that they uh, run counter to mainstream uh, bourgeois ideals. Um, it's a form of uh, rebellion in some ways. It also suggests how... Um, some things that were once on the margins of American culture, such as piercing, uh, body piercing, which used to be associated with uh, uh, the uh, S&M culture, uh, um, right. you know, and, and homosexual culture has now entered the mainstream. Um, I know it upsets a lot of parents, um, but I think that, you know, I think people would might even like the section I have on piercing in the book as a way of coming to, to try to understand it. Before we close, I'd like to move on to your thoughts um, about how the body project applies uh, to people of your generation. Well, I don't think that um, women of my age are free of the bad body fever. Uh, I think that many of us, as we've aged, have come to understand the ways in which making the body into a total project are a brain drain. Um, you know, we, we have better things to do with our lives and obsess constantly about the uh, where the needle is on the scale. And yet, I think that there are ways in which a lot of us have not changed our behavior. Um, I know that when I see women friends who I haven't seen sometimes, you know, just for a week or two, uh, certainly if I haven't seen them in a few months or a year, inevitably we look at each other, we eyeball each other, we, and somebody says, you look 
either you look like you've lost weight or your new haircut is fabulous or uh, you got new glasses. It's always a visual read. The same focus that you mentioned earlier in relationship to your granddaughters. Right. It's the kind of reading the body. If little girls see us doing that all the time, I mean, how can they not, how, how can they help but conclude that that's the most important thing? So, I mean, I think a lot of people my age ought to stop reading each other's bodies. Um, this is not the easiest thing in the world to do. I don't it's easier to read than reading someone's mind. Pardon me? Easier to read than reading someone's mind because no, it's... but you can ask someone, uh, how are you doing? You know, how's your job? You know, how's, how's your family? Uh, <laughs> sure, uh, sure. It's the first thing that American women say to one another. Why? Why? Because I think that's their priority. That has been our priority for too long. A learned priority and... Yes, a learned priority indeed, but one that we've come to internalize. And it's been, it certainly has been an issue for me in my life. I mean, I, this summer, for the first time, I ran a 5K. I am not built like a runner. Um, I'm a, a short, uh, stocky woman, and I was determined uh, that to begin to internalize this message that I hope I'm, I'm making clear in the book, that is, that we must begin to think about what our bodies can do uh, rather than simply what they look like. Do you see a future for that change? Yes, I do. I mean, I think there are plenty of healthy people out there who understand why this is important, uh, who are putting the emphasis on health rather than simply beauty, although sometimes I think these things can fuse and really become very, very intense, often in some uh, even uh, pathological ways. But, I, 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 you know, the other side of it is that with genetic engineering and easier and cheaper plastic surgery and laser imaging and designer babies, I mean, all of these things are becoming more and more uh, possible. I think it's, it's conceivable that in the 21st century that the pressure on girls could be even more intense. Uh, one thing I would hope we would all do is begin to resist some of the more commercial forms of exploitation of uh, the body project. Joan Jacob Sperberg, I want to thank you for joining us on Radio Curious. And before we close, I want to ask you the question that, again, I ask all my guests at the end of an interview. And that is, could you tell us of an interesting book that uh, you've read lately or would recommend? Yeah, I read a book called Learning to Bow. And I'm blanking on the name of the author, but it has a red and white check cover. And it's about the Japanese education system and about the way in which Japanese children are socialized. Uh, it's by a young man who went to teach in a remote region of Japan. And since I'm going there soon, I just found it fascinating. Learning to bow. Learning to bow. Joan Jacobs Brumberg, thanks for joining us on Radio Curious. Joan Jacobs Brumberg is the author of The Body Project, An Intimate History of American Girls. The book that she recommends is Learning to Bow by Bruce Feiler. Copies of this and other editions of Radio Curious can be found on our website, www.radiocurious.org. There are over 750 archives on our website, radiocurious.org, and I'm honored to tell you that Radio Curious is now part of the collection at the Library of Congress. 
We appreciate your cards, ideas, and letters, and do enjoy hearing from you. The email is curious at radiocurious.org. The postal address is 700 West Smith Street, Ukiah, California, 95482. The phone is 707-621-5075. Ignacio Ayala is the assistant producer. I'm host and producer Barry Vogel. Thank you for listening.